Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Yes, going in the Nami. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It's your local community radio station. Um, and my name's Andy. It is great to be with you again in the Triple Z studio here broadcasting on uh, the lands of the Jagara and Turable people. Of course, uh, depending on where you are, you might be listening to this further afield, um, both from our radio tower, but also using the magic of the internet. But um, wherever you are in Australia, you are on Aboriginal country. I'll be with you for the next hour. And um, today on the show, we will be chatting to Lech Blaine. He is a journalist and writer. He wrote uh, late last year the quarterly essay, which, um, as the name suggests, comes out four times a year. Um, it is a long-form essay about uh, politics and current affairs in Australia and all that. Um, and Lech Blaine wrote a very interesting one about uh, the larrikin myth. It's called Top Blokes, the Larrikin Myth, Class and Power. And uh, it covers a lot of ground. I found it very interesting about the the ruling class in our society, as in uh, the billionaires and the... Uh, politicians who represent the interests of uh, money and the ownership class that they are they all like to play down and um, culturally try to claim that they're all uh, larrikins you know loving a footy and a beer including Scott Morrison our uh, raised in the eastern suburbs son of a copper Pentecostal Christian likes to claim that he's just a average footy and beer-loving suburban dad. And Lech Blaine interrogates, why is this? And what does it mean? Um, how does it manifest politically? Um, and how could it look different for the future? It's a great essay. I recommend reading it. You can get it online as well as um, going and supporting those bookstores, which are so constantly under threat. Um but also, I recommend you hang around for the next hour and have a listen to me and Lech chatting about uh, larrikins, about politics, about rugby league, um, and about uh, how we can create a better country in the midst of all this. So, it's a nice long chat, so I'm going to get straight into it. I um, hope you enjoy it. 
and we'll be playing some great tunes in between bits of this interview, so stick around. Could you start off by introducing yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Lech Blaine. I'm a writer from country Queensland. I moved to Sydney the start of last year, uh, published my first book, Car Crash, in April last year, and then a quarterly essay called Top Blokes in September. Yes, so I read the quarterly essay um, that came out late last year and thought it was a really great piece of writing across different genres, I guess, but exploring a very worthwhile topic of uh, class in Australia um, and how it is represented and how it manifests politically. Uh, What was the idea for this essay? Yeah, well, I've been writing about class and about masculinity in my own personal writing in terms of um i wrote a memoir and and yeah i was sort of exploring those things and uh in that memoir i was exploring this idea of the larrikin because i grew up in pubs in country queensland and my dad was a larrikin and i was sort of surrounded by these uh very traditional australian male figures and definitely tried to to live up to that as a young man and, and probably got myself into a fair bit of trouble by doing that. And then so, um, so yeah, it, it, it was quite a personal thing. And then I'd also been writing about politics, uh, so lots of essays about politics and uh, usually covering class and, and the disconnect between Queensland and the rest of the country or, or especially between Queensland and Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I, I was just really interested in the way that Australian politicians have sort of struggled with, with that identity crisis as well, but just um, on a lot larger scale because they're obviously running the country. And, and so, yeah, I, I was uh, writing about all this stuff and then Scott Morrison came along and, and he really encapsulated everything that I was sort of thinking about the way that politicians um, a, attempted to mimic the mannerisms of of ordinary Australians and, and sort of cast themselves as, as larrikins. And, yeah, he was probably, um, obviously, Bob, Bob Hawke's the first one that comes to mind. Uh, but I, I think that Scott Morrison made a very conscious attempt to, to, to sort of mimic those personality traits. Yeah, well, I mean, Bob Hawke was the sort of Rhodes Scholar who came from generations of politicians who... Uh, kind of affected the working class, but Scomo's sort of different in that he's the uh, um, the sort of Puritan wowser uh, from the inner city who has taken on this character. Um, it seems more of an act for him than even for somebody like Hawke. Oh, definitely, yeah. I, I think that um, yeah, I, I think that Hawke definitely hammed it up a little bit, but he was. You know, there was no denying that, he, you know, he he did he took a lot of those personality traits to the nth degree. He was a he was an alcoholic. Uh, he was a serial womaniser. Where the, I'm, I'm not I'm not glorifying or or saying that that's a great thing, but you know, he he, he was he was pretty he, he was pretty legitimate um, in a lot of ways, uh, often to his detriment in his personal life. Uh, whereas, yeah, I I, I, I think that Morrison. It takes a, a, certainly the vernacular and values and the obsession with sport and uh, mateship and uh, being a bloke and, and all that sort of stuff and um, and yeah it's 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 very confected 
it um, it doesn't really gel at all with his his private life or his um, personal history. Yeah, but um, people moulding their identity to fit certain expectations or certain ideals, that's pretty common and it's not really... Um, we might not say it's great for them as an individual, to, as an authentic individual, but it's not of that much significance, whereas politically across the board, this kind of co-option of working class values by a certain side of politics, or, um, that's where it becomes a more interesting story, isn't it? Yeah, it's not, you know, and, and, and even within politics, like politicians, that's their job. Like to be a successful politician, you need to to reflect the people to some extent uh, and and he's just doing that he's just done that really skillfully so I, I, I don't think that um, I don't think that being a, a fake necessarily precludes you from political office because a lot of the best politicians have been quite fake in some ways I, I, I think it's just more interesting the way that it it um, it really matches up with this broader movement in the in the way that conservative parties have started to um, the base of conservative parties has, has, has changed significantly and the base of uh, social democratic parties has also changed significantly. And so um, these conservative parties very much speak uh, the language of the working class and, and, and directly try to appeal to them, uh, while at, a lot of, at the same time um, they have made a extremely conscious attempt to whittle away the the work the the rights of workers and uh the the benefits of uh of of the welfare state and and so that's they've they've both sort of gone hand in hand they speak um the liberal party speaks a lot more egalitarian language than it did 40 years ago but um their success at actually and actually attacking the working class has been a lot more successful than 40 years ago. And so it's been, yeah, a, a pretty interesting paradox. Mm. And you mentioned as well these business leaders that who took on the role of the larrikin while, you know, extracting huge amounts of money out of the working class who work for them, people like... Um, from Kerry Packer and Alan Bond to modern-day figures like Twiggy Forrest and Gina Reinhart... Yeah, and that's and it's the same thing. I think that um, they generally have come from really privileged backgrounds, and you know, they're Australia's equivalents uh, of of aristocrats in England. And there's and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, but I think that what the 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 ruling class in Australia has realised is that Australia is quite a different country to Britain. Uh, the way that we've developed, at least with white settlement means that there is an egalitarian streak here. You can't as nakedly create a class system here and that the best way for them to maintain their power and to maintain an affinity with the general population is to is to actually act down and, and to appeal to those people and, and often to, to sort of ape their behaviour, which is something that you would just never see from the upper class in England where the, the class system is so entrenched. One of the things that your essay really highlights, and I think it's a very valuable thing to understand politics at this point in time in the Western world, is this kind of transition of 
uh, political allegiance from an economic basis to a, a values basis or a cultural basis or identity basis. And you uh, quote Thomas Piketty, whose work Capital and Ideology will probably be quoted a lot in people exploring this because it's a statistical work that explores what anecdotally a lot of us have seen. Do you think that there's enough awareness of this as a, a factor in our current political landscape? Oh, it, it, it's been quite, you know, it's been explored a lot now, um, not just by him, but, you know, there's people have been writing books about this for, for quite a while. Uh, but I think that, you know, it, it, it obviously wasn't well understood by the political parties themselves because, especially the social democratic political parties, because they kept on repeating the same mistakes and, and really um, entrenching that drift from... Uh, of working class voters away from from them, so that's happened right around the world. It's not just an Australian phenomenon. Uh, and then, yeah, he's obviously studied that, and th- that's something that a lot of people have sort of felt intuitively, and I felt it intuitively, even in the sort of value gap between myself, who had a pretty uh, comfortable middle class upbringing, and someone like my dad, who had a working class upbringing. And, uh, my politics was a lot more based around identity. It was a lot more based around um, social values. Uh, my dad's politics was very, very strongly based around economics and around jobs and, and around, um, you know, workers' rights. And so I, I sort of lived that as a, as a teenager and then um, started st- studying politics uh, and then obviously started writing about politics over the last few years. And so, yeah, it was something that I, I really felt intuitively and then once you actually start to unpack it and um i think that there has been you know you know the 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 big sort of moment where it all uh became over overwhelmingly obvious was with trump and with brexit and and uh, these results you know seeing voters who voted for barack obama working class voters in the sort of midwestern states then voting for donald trump i i i think that the and then working-class voters in the north of England who, who voted for Brexit uh, and have gradually switched to the Conservatives. So I, I think that that was really the moment where um, social democratic parties realised that they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't continue to, to really maintain the same sort of uh, approach to politics. Mm. But as you point out in your essay in Australia, that transition happened much earlier with John Howard's appeal to the battlers of Australia and his uh, popularity in that kind of labour heartland of uh, Western Sydney and outer suburbs. Yeah, and in, especially in regional um, Australia. So, yeah, he... he um you know, Labor's actually done a reasonable job of maintaining working-class voters, especially compared to some of the social democratic parties in, in Europe who have just really capitulated. Um, so Labor certainly hasn't, hasn't lost them all and, and Howard didn't win them all. Uh, he, but he was, he was um, able to win enough to, you know, win repeated elections and, uh, and, and really change the template for Australian politics. And... Um, the the leader since him, at least on the conservative side, who's been most effectively able to to really appeal to that same demographic is Scott Morrison, uh, and that's why at the last election you you saw 
the the results actually weren't that different to the previous election, but you saw all these really interesting shifts in between um, Turnbull in 2016 and then Morrison in 2019, where the seats with who that, that were the most university educated and and were sort of more affluent um, swung towards Turnbull in 2016. Uh, that then the exact reverse happened in 2019. So you you saw the, a lot of those inner city and quite affluent seats swing towards Labor, and a lot of those uh, outer suburban or regional seats or rural seats swing towards Scott Morrison. Uh, and and the the reason why that's significant is not because the the voters in that first cohort are sort of somehow inferior or um, you know less ethical than the battlers and those other areas. It's just that elections tend to be won in the outer suburbs and in the regions. So um, the Labor Party, yeah, it, it, it doesn't really, I don't think, have a path to power unless it is able to, to, to more successfully appeal to, um, to the outer suburban and regional seats, especially in Queensland, because Labor's just been getting um, smashed there federally. And... Uh, and yeah, they 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 need to find a way to pick up seats. There. There's another factor, though, especially in those Queensland seats, where the swing was not on a primary level so much towards the Liberal Party, but it swung heavily to uh, One Nation and the ultimate co-opter of working class. Uh, ideas for rural class when Clive Palmer, um, the like that was where the swing went, and then preferences went, and so these two parties have uh, are a big factor in Australian politics in this way as well, aren't they? Yeah, totally. The the like one nation, um, you know, not not a hundred percent, but a, a lot of their voters historically have been disenfranchised Labor voters. Uh, so, you know, that's just a basic reality is that for Labor to win the next election or to win any election, they're going to need to win over people who um, either sympathise with One Nation or have actually voted for One Nation, uh, which is an uncomfortable thing because, you know, as progressives, you, 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 you vehemently disagree with the values of a party like One Nation. But, um, yeah, a, a lot of those voters, they aren't, they aren't signing up wholesale to the Liberal Party. Historically, they... Um, are just as distrustful of the Liberal Party as they are of Labor. It's just them um, really, especially in those coal mining seats, registering a protest vote against... Like, voters who would usually vote for Labor registering a protest vote against Labor by voting for One Nation and then giving their their um, preferences to the Liberal Party. Uh, so, yeah, that's that can be potentially um, an even worse situation for Labor if... They have three seats in the Hunter uh, Valley, which are currently held by Labor, historically held by Labor, uh, but also had massive swings against them at the last election. But they they were so safe that they didn't fall, but they could just as easily fall um, to the conservative side of politics as well. So it's um, yeah, it's not just Queensland; it's it's the Hunter Valley as well. And if you if you take away those seats, it starts to become very hard to see uh, a sort of electoral path for Labor to to win an election especially a majority. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, let's go back to the larrikin idea, which I I find a very uh, worthwhile study of Australian uh, culture and identity and politics. Like you, I'm from a, a rural background and uh, have a high appreciation for the larrikin characters of Australia. Um, but one of the things I found interesting in your essay is that the the political figures that you talk about and then your more anecdotal figures of your own family and our family friends are mostly men and this larrikin ideal is mostly a male thing traditionally and yet politically it's not that there's a massive split gender wise um on who votes for what party i mean how do you think gender plays into all of this well, I think that historically it was just the case that um, the the figure that was lionised as a larrikin was um, was male, and that was probably a symptom of of just the society, Australia's society at the time, and and just broader social realities. And then I, I think it probably became really well entrenched by um, when it overlapped with the Anzac tradition, and so um, once once the larrikin sort of became a digger well you know they're all sort of men so um it it, it really entrenched this 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 idea of of the larrikin sort of being a a bloke um i i i don't think necessarily that if you look at the idea of a larrikin and if the the basic sort of tenet of a larrikin is that they're anti-authoritarian or they snub their nose at authority that's obviously got nothing to do with gender um if anything the 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 people who are doing that the most in modern society um, are actually women, and the the women, the female politicians who, or the the, the politicians who are throwing their nose at authority the most are, are generally women. They're the, they're they're the ones who have um, had to struggle harder to to get to the position that they're in. They um, they they don't fit the, those traditional moulds, and that's what larrikins are supposed to be all about. Uh, but yeah, it, it hasn't quite translated to popular imagination. So when someone like Julia Gillard was elected, she probably had a lot of those character traits that you would associate with someone like Bob Hawke, but they weren't seen as being positive when they were exhibited by a woman. Uh, and so she was judged for, you know, a lot smaller sins than someone like Bob Hawke. Um, and, and yeah. Uh, she was actually like lampooned and patronised for a lot of those sort of character traits and the way that she spoke and just some of her personal tastes. And so, yeah, but I, I, I do think that things are shifting. And if you, you look at uh, examples recently, like someone like Grace Tame, who was a classic larrikin and, and really exhibits a lot of those, the positive attributes of the larrikin and, and really takes a piss out of people when power, like... Um, yeah, I, I don't think that there's uh, innately any reason why we why we wouldn't consider those people larrikins. I suppose you cover a lot of ground in your essay, and it is towards the end that you touch on some of these things, uh, gender being one, and another one being uh, mental health and, like, traditional Australian masculinity, uh, what it means for mental health, which is something that you've written about in your memoir, Car Crash. You've really explored that topic as well, haven't you? Yeah, I think that that's another, that's another sort of pa- paradox is that as a society, we, we're really, and political leaders really attempt to open up the conversations around mental health while still sort of committing to the, the same 
outdated cliches about masculinity and and about the way that men should act and and so i mean that's probably my more basic or primal project is is to sort of just strip the, the mask off masculinity and and do it in an honest way as possible and and so i think that if we start to allow different kinds of leadership into the public realm um from you know politicians whether that's male politicians who don't quite fit the that larrikin mold or you know female politicians i i think that we will um provide more examples for people out there who don't fit that mold and and who and and make them feel like that they don't need to try and overcompensate or you know that they don't fit in with um traditional ideas about Australian masculinity or just Australian identity. Mm. It's a a very interesting one because there is um, so much that needs to be unpacked about this, about the way it plays into power um, in this country, which you've done politically and about gender and about mental health. But also, uh, do you think that there are, are good things about that traditional, I suppose, white Australian um, identity that you know are worth trying to preserve in an era of you know American cultural imperialism or things positive things that come out for it that can be a force for good in politics and society. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think that um, that identity and that political tradition ha- has a lot to answer for. It it was you know this egalitarian idea of the Australia's white working class the that community was really the driving force for the white Australia policy. Uh, it, it certainly wasn't perfect, but it did achieve lots of things in terms of the the way that the that the labour market in Australia was was constructed, and lots of positive things. And uh, a lot of those things were were gradually uh, wound back from you know the, sort of the beginning of the eighties and. Um, Predominantly by Hawke and Keating, but then yeah, Howard um, sort of took that and ran with it. And so, you know, I think that there there are there are lessons in terms of political solidarity that can be learned from that, and in terms of uh, in terms of the way that that workers uh, you know unite and and for 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 a common good. Um, and that might not necessarily. I'm, I'm not saying that, that would, needs to translate to the white working class in Australia, because I think that the the working class in Australia now is so much more diverse uh, than what you know than what it was 100 years ago. Uh, and, and I and I think that if you sort of tap into that, some of those same underlying themes and sort of values, there's, there's no reason that they can't be sort of translated to this much more diverse much more sort of socially equal society and 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 yeah start to achieve some some sort of progress for the work for the working class here which is has really been un, under attack for uh, a, a significant period of time mm. yeah i'm interested in talking a bit more about it, but before we go to i did notice one thing uh, 
the other day when I was trying to contact you, I went on your website and found your CV and I realised that actually I'd read a lot of your articles in the monthly and that I'd enjoyed these articles. You have this really interesting standpoint in your journalism. You're almost like the monthly's kind of bogan correspondent um, <laughs> writing about <laughs> the outer suburbs and Ipswich and Toowoomba and rugby league and these things for a, a monthly audience which, uh, let's face it, is mostly populated by kind of inner city, uh, well-off people. Is that something that you've intentionally cultivated? No, not at all. Like I, well, uh, intentionally in the in the sense that, yeah, I've chosen those subjects to write about. Uh, but no, it's it's sort of been pretty um, pretty random. A lot of those pieces developed quite organically, and like I, you know, you, you pitch a lot of pieces, and a lot of them don't get uh, the ideas don't get accepted. So. Um, like I never thought that I would be able to get a piece up about rugby league, especially a really long one in the monthly, but it, circumstances just sort of conspired to make it happen um, because of COVID. And so, yeah, it, it, it's all sort of happened quite organically, but then um, the quarterly essay obviously came up and I really took all of the things that I'd been writing about uh, and united them into a single piece. Uh, all the things that I've been writing about in my personal writing and then also the things that I've been writing about in my journalism and it probably wasn't really until i'd actually written the quarterly essay that i realized that i'd been um yeah like just how sort of central those themes were to my writing um because at at the time i i wasn't really setting out i didn't really have a project you know i i didn't expect to ever even place a piece with the monthly and then when i did I was just sort of throwing out the ideas that I had and then they were getting published. So I wasn't doing a whole lot of soul searching about what I was trying to do or, or, or anything like that. But yeah, to, <laughs> for you to call it the, the Bogan correspondent for the monthly, like, yeah, I'm, I'd be chuffed with that description. Like, I, I don't, uh, I mightn't have been, you know, like five years ago, I would probably would have been mortified because I, that's sort of the, the cultural heritage that I was trying to run away from. But, um, yeah, I'm partly through just life and then partly through my writing. Like, I've become extremely comfortable with that. And then the good part about that is that you put the writing out there and then you get um, lots of feedback from people, both, yeah, yeah, that, that monthly audience that um, that are exposed to a different way of thinking or different values or different life experiences, but then also all the people who um, do come from that sort of cultural heritage who are who are just extremely chuffed that it has a place in these prestigious literary you know political publications and and that's that's um, that's an amazing feeling like a, yeah I, I definitely didn't set out to do that but it's been pretty cool yeah I think there's a value in it um, where the the media and I mean, social media exacerbates this, the different uh, cultural tastes of uh, different demographics in our society and how it gets more and more divergent and that the viewpoints of these uh, rural and semi-rural areas um, and these more working-class interests aren't often represented in, say, the knowledge class media like the monthly. I think it's very valuable. Yeah, yeah. and Like, I don't... um, I also don't... Like I try to explore my own contradictions and all of this. Like I, like I don't. Um, I'd, I'd never try to attempt to to make myself like a the voice of the working class because, as I said, I had a pretty um, you know. I, even though my my family background was pretty working class, like I like I had a very easy life and I've never worked a hard day 
in my life. Uh, so I, I, I don't try to make myself to, to be some sort of oracle or anything like that. Like I, um, I'm very much implicated in, in you know the, the, the privilege of the knowledge class and 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 this uh, sort of inner city, so-called inner city elite. Uh, but I, I, I do think it's valuable. Like, you don't want to glorify it or make it, like, to seem like it's all virtue or whatever, but, like, it, it is just valuable for people to have an idea about what how people think and what they do. And, and because a lot of those people, it just so happens that the people who decide elections as well. Mm. Um, and Rugby League, it's featured prominently in your writing and indeed in the quarterly essay it's a recurring theme you're obviously a fan um it do you use it um as a kind of metaphor for working class culture or do you think that rugby league is this really uh vital part of australia's uh current political makeup Oh well, I think that rugby league encapsulates all of those contradictions as well because it does. It's it's sort of similar. It comes from a very working class uh, heritage. It's faced all the same sort of trans- social transformations as the Labor Party has. Like it's it's certainly not purely a working class activity or sport anymore. It's a billion dollar industry, and and so I I think that it probably the reason why it features so prominently is a because I'm a fanatical fan. Um, and B, uh, there's just lots of anecdotes that I can tell drawing from my own life that, that sort of draw from, um, that, that, that paint a picture about the idea of the battler or the idea of the outsider that, that rely on, on rugby league. And C, because um, it helps explain some of the political, you know, climate in the country because there is a reason why Scott Morrison reinvented himself as a rugby league fan. It's because in the regional and outer suburban seats in New South Wales and Queensland, it's the dominant social um, glue. It's the thing that, you know, unites... It's not the only thing. There's lots of people who don't in those places that wouldn't be rugby league fans at all. But generally, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a massive social unifier. And it's something that historically hasn't been shown much respect by the... Uh, political or media class, and especially the media class, you know, in the in in um, inner city Sydney and, and Melbourne, sort of see it as a sport for buffoons. Uh, and you know, the players haven't really helped that because they they act, um, consistently act like buffoons. But I think that yeah, the the reason why it came back up in that essay is is probably purely because Scott Morrison has has really uh, taken his his. Um, overnight rugby league fandom and and made it a central part of his identity and I, and I think it's really interesting to explore why he would do that uh, but also what it is about that that people in those seats find appealing because they um, historically probably aren't really used to someone who just someone in that position who just unabashedly is such a massive rugby league fan in the quarterly essay you do I guess draw some ideals for progressive left in Australia um, that you think can win back power or be a force for good. Um, And a lot of it is about the Labor Party sort of being a bit more centrist, trying to appeal to everybody, uh, Albanese, where a lot of people see it as a weakness, his kind of lack of charisma or personality. You kind of see that as a strength that it can, you know, appeal to a broader audience. It's it's quite centrist, your ideals of where this should go. Whereas a lot of people see that Larrikin 
identity as this kind of untapped reservoir of a kind of anti-authoritarian force for more radical politics on, say, uh, climate change or social equality or something like that. Um, is that something that you've thought about? Oh, yeah. Well, it, it's the difference between my own personal views and, and what it takes to win elections. And my own personal views, you know, aren't going to win elections in Australia, I don't think, based on any recent sort of evidence. So it's about reorientating progressive politics away from just being um, just being a, a thing of identity or a, a, a sort of virtue, virtue signalling process to actually winning elections. And that's, that's the way that, you know, it's, it, it needs to be based on power. Um, and, and there's lots of things that, you know, you do with power that, that aren't necessarily... Like, I, I, I think that historically it was very much the other way around. I think that conservatives were uh, much more interested in, in sort of signalling things about themselves or, or that they... Social democratic parties are very much about gaining power, doing whatever it takes to gain power and then um, trying to do as much as they can with that power. And I think that that's sort of switched around. So it's not about being... I mean, it, it might sound less radical, but, like, at the end of the day... Uh, and, and it's not really about the late, like, uh, like I don't think that the, the lesson with Albanese, for example, is that, um, that, that everyone needs to be like him, but that's just who, like, there's, I, I don't think that he's a particularly charismatic guy, or, or at least not in the way that someone like Gough Whitlam or Bob Hawke was. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't think that he can win the election. Like, I, I, I think that because, for a whole heap of reasons, like Australia is at a federal level, uh, you know, leans much more to the conservative side. And it, at this point in time, without the sort of social infrastructure provided by the Labor movement that people like Whitlam and Hawke enjoyed, I, 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 I don't think that a leader that presents any sense of threat is probably going to win. Like, uh, I, you look at someone like Bill Shorten, like he's he's extremely centrist as well he wasn't he wasn't really that radical uh and yet won but yet lost the unlosable election so is someone who presents uh an extremely left-wing agenda going to win an election at least at a federal level in australia at the moment i i don't think i don't think so like um that's the basic reality like the, i this the essay wasn't about sort of me um providing a wish list of what I what I want um it it, it was really about analyzing the political realities and and um yeah there, there's as i said there's um that's that can be hard like tough and and uncomfortable and it doesn't necessarily totally align with my values or beliefs or what i see as uh the ultimate society for or the ultimate political platform for a so-called larrikin but that's just where i think things are at at the moment yeah there is a history in australia of radicals drawing on that uh, larrikin identity from henry lawson to frank hardy the union movement and even elements of radical environmental movement but you seem to think that the typical aussie larrikin is not as radical as uh they think they are well, yeah, I think that that's true, and I. But I also think that all those things, um, in terms of social movements, like you know, that like 
I think that they're they're not completely separate from the political process, but um, someone like Albanese can't just by necessity of like a two party system. He can't like uh, he needs to win power. Whereas I I think that it it's it's an amazing thing that a lot of these social movements are happening around that, and I I hope that they continue to happen separately from politics. Like if we look at what's happened over the past year, um, especially in terms of the social movement and the marches for women and stuff like that, like that like that's not that's not taking sort of permission from the political class. That's sort of just going out and doing it. And I, I hope that that continues, not just with gender, but with the environment and, and, um, and with, you know, a whole bunch of other social issues and political issues. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think that... Uh, I certainly wouldn't be uh, advising any of those movements to take a more sort of centrist approach. Like, it's, I think it's really good and healthy that they are... Um, they are really pushing for change in, in a quite radical way, um, and and yeah, that that will then over time hopefully contribute to the changing complexion of uh, of politics in Australia, and 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 hopefully you know achieve a better future for the country. All right, thanks very much, Lech, for chatting with us today. No worries, mate. That is Lech Blaine talking to the Paradigm Shift. Um, hope you enjoyed our little chat. Um, covered a few different topics and a very interesting one, the uh, role of the larrikin and the working class identity in Australian politics. Of course, for so long it was um, something that was very important for the left in this country, pushing social uh, equality, workers' rights, things like that. Um, but it has been, you know, recently, over the recent decades, co-opted by the right and by big business, particularly big mining business. And this is one of the interesting things about all this is um, when uh, these ideas of what it means to be an Australian or a working-class person uh, are co-opted by billionaires who are destroying the planet for their own gain. Uh, it puts us all at risk, and so it becomes quite pressing what we do about this, and I think there is work to be done trying to reclaim those ideas of um, the value of being somebody who works, who creates a society, who builds things, um, and of... Uh, belonging to a culture and uh, a tradition and a community, even a nation or a, um, or a more localised community. Those ideas that are so much a part of the uh, working class identity that have slowly shifted away from the left, which is now so often the party of the educated inner city, um, and driven into the right, um, we need to address that, particularly when it comes to climate change, but all kinds of other issues in this country where um, we might we may say that some of the, the richest and most powerful people in this country do not have the best interests of the majority of Australians at heart, but they continually try to position themselves as if they do. And so we need more interesting critique of this, like that offered by Lech Blaine, and we need people... Uh, getting together and working together and talking about what does it really mean to care about uh, Australia, to care about our communities, to care about, you know, the rights of uh, people to live out their um, their own uh, culture, their own freedom. Um, and that is up to all of us. I'm just about out of time on the paradigm shift. Hope you enjoyed 
uh, another show. Um, I certainly did. If you liked hearing Lech Blaine, you can read plenty of his writing. That quarterly essay is available both online and in uh, all good bookstores. And also he wrote a book called Car Crash about his uh, experience of surviving a fatal car crash as a teenager and then struggling to be able to grieve in the middle of a, a macho Australian identity that sort of stopped him from doing that. He's written lots of other great articles too, which I do recommend. Um, other than that, I'll be back next week bringing you more of the um, most interesting and intelligent um, <laughs> political critique from this country and around the world. Um, Keep listening to 4ZZZ. See you next week.